As we go to your word, we thank you that your spirit has come to indwell us, that your spirit makes his home in, in us as believers in Jesus Christ. We want to walk by the spirit, keep in step with the spirit, and Lord, we know that the spirit is all about exalting the son of God, Jesus Christ. According to John 14 through 16, the spirit is sent in the name of Jesus. The spirit is sent to remind us of the words of Jesus. The spirit is sent to convict the world of the sin of unbelief in Jesus. Lord God, you are spirit all about exalting Christ. And may that be our heart today as we open your word. May we lift Christ high. May we see him in a refreshed way, in a glorious way, that we would then be able to carry into our week in every situation that we face. So come, Lord, be amongst us now in Jesus' precious, holy, mighty, and saving name. Amen. There's a city in southeastern Germany called Passau. And at Passau, there is a confluence a merging together, a convergence of three separate rivers. So from the north, and notice my um, little legend there, uh, it's not what you think, north is on the bottom of the screen. So from the north comes the Ilts River, from the south comes the Inn River, and in the center flows the Danube River. The three rivers converge at Passau, resulting in a single river, which then carries on still with the name Danube, taken from the middle river, and the, the freshly converged Danube then flows on from Passau off to the east. Well, that picture of a confluence, a convergence of rivers came to mind this week as I was studying Matthew's version of the triumphal entry. Today is Palm Sunday, of course, and there is a confluence of scriptural rivers that converge in Matthew's telling of Palm Sunday, that day when Jesus strode into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. And I think that as we see this confluence of scriptural rivers or streams that come together in Matthew 21, it serves to make our King, Jesus Christ, appear all the more glorious and all the more great. And that's really my aim today, to simply help us behold our King, to help us behold his glory so that we can go into Holy Week strengthened, rejoicing, humbled, and full of worship. So allow me, if you would, to take you on a sort of river cruise this morning that starts in the Old Testament and ends up at Matthew 21. And so our river cruise begins in the same passage that we preached about a month and a half ago, 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath. We may recall that instead of using human-made armor, David did what? He trusted in the Lord. 
to defeat Goliath. And in that story, we have verse 45, where David famously says to Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, all that human-made armor, but I come to you, how? In the name of Yahweh of armies, in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David came fighting Goliath, not in David's own strength, but in the name of Yahweh. Now, when I bought my first car, this is going way back to about 19, I think it was 1988, <laughs> 89, it's all a blur now. But I was especially ignorant at that early time in my life, I was ignorant about cars and engine parts and how they worked, and I still am. But one day, that first uh, beat-up car that I had, Chev Malibu, uh, didn't start. Just turned the key and, and nothing happened. I didn't know what was wrong. I had it towed over to a mechanic who very quickly diagnosed the problem. The alternator had quit. I had no idea what an alternator was, but now the problem with my car had been named alternator. I needed a new alternator. And that diagnosis, using that name alternator, meant that now the issue had been narrowed down and the issue had been located. That new alternator that they would put in was a very specific part with a very specific function that had very specific attachments to the other parts of the car and it would now be brought over to the shop, installed in my car, and I could start it again. Well, friends, in ancient thought, names and essences were closely related. Names and essences were closely related. An alternator alternates. Names and functions were very closely related. The name of a person and the very being of that person were organically connected. So that when David says to Goliath that he, David, comes in the name of Yahweh, he's not just saying, my God has this label, Yahweh. David is in fact saying that he comes onto the battlefield with the very essence, the very presence, the very character, the very power, the very reputation of the being Yahweh. The Old Testament theologian Ralph Smith, as he summarizes this idea, he says, Yahweh's name stands for his presence, power, and authority. Name and being were very closely intertwined in this particular ancient culture, unlike ours today. So I hope you've enjoyed our little dip into this first stream. Uh, this first river, David in 1 Samuel 17, coming to do battle with Goliath in the name of the Lord. Remember that. The second stream, the second river that we need to grab our canoe and, and put on the river just for a moment is Isaiah 28, 16, which reads like this. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, 
the temple, Jerusalem, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Isaiah 28, 16 is God's promise to his exiled people that when he restored them after the exile, he would lay in Zion, in Jerusalem, a stone, a foundational cornerstone, second river. But let's take our canoe over, let's portage over to our third river, which looks a lot like that second river. The third river is Zechariah 4, verse 7, which reads, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. So once again there, like Isaiah 28, 16, in this verse, we have the promise of a top stone. We have the promise of a capstone to be installed in the restored kingdom after the exile. So friends, just to review, so far we have three rivers. We have 1 Samuel 17, 45, with David coming to the enemy in the name of the Lord. We have Isaiah 28, 16, with a cornerstone being laid in Zion. And in Zechariah 4, 7, we have this capstone being positioned after the exile. There is now a confluence of these three rivers. The three rivers join up together in one mighty river, which is Psalm 118. And all these blessed liters, gallons of living water are flowing somewhere truly mighty and truly great. Stay with me. So let's dip our toes now into the great river of Psalm 118. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Psalm 118 is basically this. It's a psalm of praise after Israel's king has won a great national victory. The psalm is not attributed, notice, to any specific king, so we're not entirely sure what the historical circumstance was that the psalm celebrates, but watch how our three rivers converge together in this psalm. So the victorious king of the psalm, he begins speaking in verse five, and his speech lasts all the way down to, through verse 21. I want us to zero in on just three verses of the king's speech, verses 10 through 12, where the king reports the danger that Israel had been in, the danger they had been in, and the nature of his victory. He says this, all nations surrounded me. So just notice this, okay? All nations surrounded me. This describes a global conflict, right? Surrounded me, and then what? In the name of Yahweh, I cut them off. That sure sounds like David in our first river, doesn't it? 1 Samuel 17, 45, David having victory over Philistine Goliath 
in the name of the Lord. David had come to enemy Goliath in the name of the Lord, in Yahweh's name, and now the king of Psalm 118 comes to the enemy nations in the name of Yahweh. And the king repeats the same refrain in the next two verses, verses 11 and 12. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees buzzing everywhere. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. So like David in 1 Samuel 17, this king in Psalm 118, his weapon against the adversaries was Yahweh's name, which meant what? It meant Yahweh's power. It meant Yahweh's presence. It meant his strong arm. It meant his authority. And notice how throughout this speech, this king in Psalm 118, whether it's David himself or another king in the lineage of David, we notice how he describes his sheer dependence on Yahweh, his intimacy with Yahweh. So in verse 5, he talks about how Yahweh had delivered him. It was Yahweh who had done that, who had set him free. In verse 14, and again in verse 21, he mentions how Yahweh is his salvation, his rescue. In verses 7 and 13, the king expresses the, the assurance there that Yahweh is his helper. Is Yahweh your helper today? Is God your helper? In verses 8 and 9, Yahweh is the king's refuge. Is God your refuge? And in verse 14, Yahweh is the king's strength. I am so weak, and I need Yahweh's strength. I don't know about you. And in verses 15 and 16, then, Yahweh is worthy of the king's praise. Why? Because Yahweh's right hand does valiantly. So just notice how unified and how close this king is with Yahweh. Well, after he's done speaking in verse 21, we get then the acclamation of the king by the people, the people that he serves, verses 22 through 27. Part of that acclamation, part of that approval that the people give to their king is verse 26, where they say this in celebration. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. King, you had come in the name of the Lord and cut off our enemies. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They say that to, to their king as he's arriving back through the gates of Jerusalem after his military victory. And we see the gates in verses 19 and 20 of the psalm. So friends, can we see then how our first river, that river of 1 Samuel 17, victory in the name of Yahweh over his enemies, this has flowed into Psalm 118. But what about the other two rivers? What about Isaiah 28, 16, 
Zechariah 4.7, that business about the cornerstone, the capstone being laid in Jerusalem after the time of exile. Well, of course, those two rivers are flowing directly into Psalm 118 also, specifically in verse 22, which is the acclamation, again, of the king, the people acclaiming their king. They say, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So just as Joseph had been rejected by his own brothers, but then ended up delivering Israel, and just as Moses had been rejected by Israel, only to go on and deliver Israel, just as David was rejected as a candidate for the kingship at first by his own father, Jesse, and then David being violently rejected by Saul, only to go on and deliver Israel, David did. So this unnamed victorious king of Psalm 118 was rejected, but then delivered Israel. He had been hated by those around him, according to his own testimony in verse seven of the Psalm. This king was a rejected stone, but God caused him to emerge as the cornerstone. God did that. So now this king was entering victoriously into Jerusalem as the cornerstone, the capstone of the entire region of nations. And so our three rivers have converged into this one grand river called Psalm 118, but we're not done our, our scriptural river cruise yet. The water of Psalm 118 is flowing mightily now, having been funded by those three earlier rivers. But guess what? Psalm 118 is flowing onward to something even greater. Yes? There is now a further confluence between two great rivers. This river called Psalm, Psalm 118 on the one hand, and on the other hand, Zechariah 9.9, that Hugh read for us earlier, together these two merge into one single, even greater, wider, deeper river. Now we need to pause just to look briefly at this other great merging river now, so, uh, Zechariah 9.9. Listen, in the book of Zechariah, very important, God himself, God himself, promises more than once to his people, his people who are returning from exile, he promises to them more than once that he himself, God himself, will arrive again to live in Jerusalem. For example, Zechariah 2.10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, what? Yahweh says, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Or the first part of Zechariah 8.3, thus says who? The Lord, 
I have returned to Zion and will what? Will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. God promises a personal <laughs> return to live with his returned people in their city. So then when we come to Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, listen, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. When we come to that verse, we should expect that the king who is coming to the people in Jerusalem on a donkey is God himself. The righteous God with salvation mounted on a donkey making his way toward the temple. Zechariah 9.9. And so friends, we're now approaching the great majestic, deep, glorious destination river that gathers up all five of the rivers that we've toured so far. Just to review, because I know it's a lot coming at you, just to review. We have David's coming to Goliath in the name of the Lord, flowing together with Isaiah 28, 16 and Zechariah 4, 7's stone, and those three rivers converge together into a wider river called Psalm 118. But now Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9.9 together converge into an even greater river called Matthew 21. Matthew 21, with its story of, of Palm Sunday, is funded by it receives its refreshing and its life-giving deep water ultimately from all five of those earlier rivers. So let's see how this works. Matthew 21 begins in a little town called Bethphage, which was about a mile away from Jerusalem. And there in Bethphage, Jesus gives directions, if we remember the story, gives directions to two of his disciples to go and fetch a donkey and her colt and then to bring the animals back to Jesus. In verse three, Jesus says to his disciples, listen carefully, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, this is one of the very few times in the gospel accounts where Jesus refers to himself as the Lord. Jesus understands himself here to be the Lord who needs the animals. Remember our Zechariah 9-9 river where we said that God himself, yes, the Lord, would be the one to sit on the donkey and arrive in Jerusalem. The Lord needs the animals. God needs the animals. God himself <laughs> will be sitting on that donkey. Amen? Amen? So already those earlier rivers are showing up in Matthew 21. And we read the third verse, of course, in connection with verse 5, 
where Zechariah 9.9 itself is explicitly quoted verbatim. Matthew tells us that the arrangement with the animal and the Lord sitting on the animal was to fulfill the ancient prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. My friends, <laughs> Jesus on that donkey is God returning to Jerusalem. The long night of exile is ending. God is returning to Zion to the temple, just as Zechariah had prophesied. We can see then that the river of Zechariah 9.9 is flowing so clearly and so strongly into Matthew 21, but what about our other four rivers? Well, listen, the donkey walks, just put yourself there for a minute if you can in your mind's eye, the donkey walks with Jesus riding on its back toward Jerusalem verses eight and nine. It's Passover season. And there are thousands of people who are camped out in the Kidron Valley. Jesus and the donkey walk through the Kidron Valley. He's making his way slowly toward one of the temple gates. He's making his way through that huge Passover crowd. And just as the people of Israel had done for King Jehu, so many centuries before this moment, so they now do for Jesus. They throw down their cloaks on the ground. And just as Israel had done only 200 years prior to this moment, bearing branches and fair boughs and palm branches also, as they recovered the temple 200 years prior from the clutches of Antiochus Epiphanes after their own Judas Maccabeus had won a great military victory, they threw their palm branches down, so they do here. They throw down their palm branches, signifying their hope that Jesus will be the new Judas Maccabeus, the new military deliverer who will free them from the clutches of Rome. And verse 9, the people shout, as we've sung already this morning, Hosanna to the son of who? Of David. Blessed is he who comes how? In the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And of course, in this shout of theirs, we have two of our earlier rivers. We have both 1 Samuel 17 and we have Psalm 118. The people shout, Hosanna. Now the word Hosanna comes directly from Psalm 118 verse 25. When the people who were, remember they had been acclaiming their king, their victorious king as he came back into Jerusalem, they said, save us. Those words, save us, in Psalm 118.25 are translated from the original Hebrew, Hoshiana, Hosanna. 
Hosanna means save us or save us now. The people crowded around that donkey with Jesus riding on top of it are shouting, Hosanna, save us. Save us now. Isn't it interesting, friends, that the very name of the one who is riding that donkey, the name Jesus, means Yahweh is salvation. God is riding that donkey. Jesus is his name, and his name means salvation. He is Savior. He will save his people, but not how they think. Along with their shouts of Hosanna, save us, Hoshiana, the people also quote Psalm 118, 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. David had come against Goliath in the name of the Lord. The unnamed king of Psalm 118 had come against the enemy nations in the name of the Lord. Now it's Jesus, the new David. And in fact, in verse 9, they make sure to call him son of David, right? It's Jesus, the new David, who they think has maybe come, has, has he maybe come to slay our giant? Roman oppression, Roman occupation. Maybe Jesus, the Davidic king, is that king who, like the king of Psalm 118, will cut off this enemy people called the Romans who have engulfed Israel. Oh yes, Jesus did in fact come <laughs> in the name of the Lord to slay a giant. Jesus did come into Jerusalem with the power, with the reputation, with the very essence of the Lord, but he is better than David because Jesus is the Lord, where David was not. Jesus is better than David because instead of reverting to a trust in men, like David ended up doing when he took the census, remember, to count up his troops. How, how many military guys do I have? Jesus didn't do that. He would fully obey Psalm 118.8, and he would take refuge always in God instead of trusting in men. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, friends, in the name of the Lord to slay a Goliath, all right, but not the Goliath that the crowd expected. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on that donkey in the name of the Lord to slay a far more frightful giant. That ugly triadic giant called sin, death, and the devil, which he would soon triumph over in the name of the Lord in his cross and in his resurrection from the dead. The new David's victory over this far greater Goliath would cost him his life. And so we've seen how these three rivers, Zechariah 9, 9, 1 Samuel 17, 45, 
Psalm 118, how they flow into Matthew 21. But what about those other two? Isaiah 28, 16, Zechariah 4, 7. Well, listen. The day after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, what happened? Jesus went to the temple. Zion, God. In verses 12 and 13 of our chapter, we have the record of Jesus in the temple. He drives out the money changers. Then in verse 14, still in the temple, Jesus heals several people, starts to take back territory from the devil. Verses 15 through 17 then record a conversation that Jesus has. Conversation is maybe putting it a little mildly. He has, has this conversation with the chief priests and scribes who are upset with him. Significantly in those verses, if you have your Bible open, watch this. Significantly, Jesus understands there that the praise to him that is coming from children in the temple is the same praise that was addressed to Yahweh in Psalm 8, verse 2. He quotes Psalm 8, verse 2 there. So that as those children are praising him in the temple, they are indeed praising God himself. God himself came into Jerusalem on the donkey. God himself was now in that temple receiving praise from children. Isn't this glorious? Our Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 18 through 22 then of the chapter, Matthew relates the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree. And then verses 23 through 27, there's a conversation between Jesus and the Jewish elite as they challenge the authority of Jesus. And then Jesus follows up that conversation with two back-to-back -back parables, beginning at verse 28. The first parable has to do with how the Jewish elite had rejected the baptizer, John. God had sent John, and they rejected him. The second parable of the tenants has to do with how that same Jewish elite had rejected, through the years, a whole line of prophets that had been sent by God, and how currently, in the current moment, what were they doing? They were rejecting the Son of God. And at the tail end of that second parable that describes their rejection of Jesus, we have more of our rivers. Matthew 21, 42, Jesus says to the Jewish elite, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. What's Jesus doing there? He's bringing in three rivers. He's bringing in Isaiah 28, 16, with Zechariah 4, 7, with Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. My friends, just as Joseph was rejected by his own brothers but ended up delivering Israel, just as Moses was rejected by his own people but ended up being mightily used of God to rescue his people, just as David had been rejected by his own family but ended up defeating Israel's enemies all around, just as Jeremiah was rejected and thrown into a cistern 
but used mightily of God during the time of the exile, so Jesus, the deliverer, is despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53, verse three. But Jesus is not rejected by his father. <laughs> Jesus is the capstone, the cornerstone, that God has laid in Zion. He's God come again to Jerusalem, God come again to his temple, God come again to Zion. He is the cornerstone of a new temple called the church that is united with the true temple, Jesus Christ. As Spurgeon once put it, he said, Jesus is the principal stone of the whole house of God. He is our cornerstone, amen? But now human beings under him were rejecting him, just as they had rejected the prophets who went before him. And my friends, the rejection of Jesus continues in our day. Because what's happening in our day? In our day, personal identity is our cornerstone and our Lord. I'll say that again, personal identity is our cornerstone and our Lord. Personal identity, whether sexual, racial, political, is the obsession of our culture and is the sad, small g God of our culture. So tragically, the cornerstone, Jesus, is not considered Lord by most people, Lord over their lives. The stone that God has laid as the preeminent stone of the entire structure of the church, he is rejected. Self has become our culture's idolatrous focus. And so what else can we say this morning for ourselves and for all of Canada than this, Hosanna, save us, O God, Hoshiana, save us, O God, surely Jesus, surely Jesus, you have borne our human griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely you, Jesus, have been wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. As human beings right now in 2023, we want to chastise each other as a full-time job. No forgiveness. Whole groups of people are unforgivable. Upon him is the chastisement that brought us peace. Yes? Glory to God the chastisement that covers human sin, I don't care what it is, the chastisement that covers human sin has been laid upon the substitute, Jesus. How the world needs him. Hosanna, we say on this Palm Sunday, save us, O Lord. My friend, are you saved from your sin? Are you saved from the wrath of God 
that comes upon sin. Has Jesus taken the wrath on that cross for you? Have you received him as Lord and Savior? Have you been saved from an eternity spent in hell? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what will happen? You will be saved. Hoshiana, save us, Lord. For with the heart one believes and is justified, declared righteous by God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is Lord. All the, the rivers of the Old Testament flow toward him. He is the refreshing, life-giving, cleansing, almighty river. The one on that donkey is the water of life that all human beings need. Amen? He is the warrior like David, coming in the name of the Lord to go to the cross in order to slay the giant that bound us. He is the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure of the worldwide church being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He is God come to Zion, the new temple the greater David, the greater Moses, the greater Abraham. He is God coming to save his people from their sins. Behold your king. Let's pray. Hosanna, Lord. Save us. Save the individuals in our land that are lost. Save our continent, save our world. Lord God, in faith we come knowing that you, there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved in the name of Jesus. Save us, O Lord, we pray. We thank you for your word. We thank you that every promise in your word is true, that your track record is a thousand percent, Lord God. We thank you for who you are and where you're leading us and the hope we have and the fact that if we believe in you and your word, we will never die. We will receive our new resurrected bodies that we will talk about next Sunday, Lord willing. We thank you for all that you have done and are doing, Lord God. You are great, we say, on this Sunday morning. May we carry this into our week. In the name of Jesus, amen.